Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 9th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. What is an issue of public interest? Is it something that matters to anyone in the public or only an issue that interests many? Must the issue or its outcome have some discernible impact on members of a community, or must it involve some prominent figure or event? Those are the questions the California Supreme Court will now weigh, at least in the context of the state's anti-slap law. The answers to those questions will go a long way towards deciding whether the many anti-slap motions filed each year in California courts are granted or denied, and clarity on what constitutes an issue of public interest is something First Amendment attorneys have long awaited. The high court has largely been silent on the matter in the 26 years since the anti-slap law's passage. Kevin Vick an anti-slap expert and partner with Jassy Vic Carolyn in Los Angeles, will be here to discuss this issue and the case in which it's presented, Rand Resources versus the City of Carson, arguments in which were aired Wednesday. The case revolves around the city's attempt to bring professional football to Carson, and it involves a fight over who had the exclusive rights to negotiate agreements relating to a potential stadium and NFL team. An anti-slap motion was granted at the trial court stage, but the Second District Court of Appeal reversed, applying a fairly narrow view of whether the dispute in fact centered around an issue of public interest. Kevin Vick contends that the appellate court's approach is needlessly constricted. He says the anti-slap law was passed by a legislature that was explicit about the law's intended broad application to be available whenever parties are sued over speech or activity relating to an issue of concern to the public. Mr. Vick contends that courts narrowly defining what in fact might be of interest to the public tends to undercut the law's original purpose, also one expressly reaffirmed with amendments drafted five years later. We'll hear from Mr. Vick in just a moment. But first, one quick reminder, we invite listeners of the podcast to receive one hour of California CLE credit for tuning into the show. It's simple enough to do. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. There is a 10-question CLE test up there now corresponding to this episode and plenty from the past episodes that are still up. Also, some tests on our site correspond to perspective opinions contributed by our readers, so look for those as well. And now, it's time for our opening briefs. An issue regarded regularly on this program was decided on in a Maryland federal court earlier this week, where a judge found that Democratic legislators in Maryland had improperly gerrymandered a congressional district in their favor. The U.S. Supreme Court last term addressed this very case and two others relating to political gerrymandering, though restrained itself from reaching any decision as to whether such politically motivated line drawing was constitutionally problematic, instead basing its decisions on narrow technical questions. This clear ruling on the merits in the lower court will give SCOTUS another chance to weigh in. In our neighborhood, the Ninth Circuit had another busy week issuing three immigration rulings of note. Of course, one was in the long-awaited decision of the Northern District's national injunction keeping alive for now the DACA program, which the Trump administration rescinded last September. We'll get to that one in just a moment, but two others are also worth a brief mention. On Thursday, in the case of Menendez v. Whitaker, Judges Callahan and Owens concurred in granting two petitions to immigrants seeking to avoid deportation, but wrote separately to stress their concern with the categorical approach applied in many immigration cases, where the court compares an immigrant's state statute of offense with the relevant federal counterpart to see whether the state law violated criminalizes a wider breadth of conduct than the comparable federal law. Where it does, a petitioner often receives relief whether or not his or her actual conduct done in the course of violating the state law, fell within that zone of criminalized activity that's wider than the federal law's reach. Callahan and Owens wrote that they, quote, remain troubled that here, immigration consequences turn on a determination in the abstract of the breadth of the underlying state statute rather than the person's actual offense. The judges expressly called on the Supreme Court to, quote, devise a more straightforward approach to this area of the law. And today, in a short ruling also relating to the categorical approach, and which invoked last term's High Court Immigration Holding Sessions v. DeMaia, where Neil Gorsuch joined his more liberal colleagues to deem a federal statute unconstitutionally vague, a unanimous panel held here the opposite. As to a different federal law, an immigration statute providing special penalties for a, quote, particularly serious crime. The panel decided that, unlike in DeMaia, Courts weighing this law's application would look at the party's actual conduct as opposed to conceiving an abstract, idealized crime using the categorical approach. Thus, that law, 8 U.S.C. 1231b3b, was deemed constitutional. 
But of course, the circuit's headliner for the week came in Regents of the University of California versus the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, where a unanimous panel comprising judges Wardlaw, Nguyen, and Owens upheld a national injunction against the Trump administration's rescission of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. It's ruling the DOJ has been impatiently awaiting and one the agency is likely keen to appeal. With a bit more on that decision, we're happy to welcome in Professor Jean Rees, the supervising attorney at USC's Immigration Clinic and an adjunct assistant professor of law, the Gould School of Law there. Professor Reese, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So in in this ruling down from the Ninth Circuit, a very long-awaited one and certainly an eagerly-awaited one, there's a few different pieces I'd like to unpack. First, the court sets out why, in its view, it thinks that it, it can rule on this case. What had been the argument by the administration that the courts had no business weighing into this case, and, and what's the reasoning uh, by the panel here that, in fact, it does? So the the administration says that, look, this decision to rescind DACA is not reviewable by the courts because DACA is a discretionary program, and under the APA, discretionary you know programs can't aren't subject to di- judicial review. And that under the INA, also there's the reviews prohibited um, pursuant to this certain INA statute. And what the panel said was the basis for DACA being rescinded wasn't because the government in its discretion decided to rescind DACA, but because the reason the government stated was solely based on their belief that DACA was illegal from its inception. So basically, the government rescinded DACA based on a belief that DACA wasn't legal, and that they can't then say the courts can't review whether or not their decision that DACA wasn't legal was legal. (laughs) Basically, because it wasn't a discretionary reason, it was based on this belief that they don't have the jurisdiction to basically act. The, you know, uh, the panel says, well, we disagree. We have, you know, any legal determinations are reviewable by the court. And then under the INA statute that the administration cited, the panel said, those, you know, that those are three um, distinct and discrete actions that um, the courts can't review and that the rescission of DACA does not fall within those three discrete actions that are mentioned in the INA. So therefore, the panel says we do have the ability to review this rescission of DACA. Okay. Then it's interesting because that the first piece that you mentioned, the, the basis stated basis for rescinding the program last year the administration gave was that it wasn't constitutional, that it was not legal. And that's at the heart of the the next piece of the court's approach, the, the ruling really on, on the merits here. They seem to say that because that was the stated basis, that DACA wasn't legal. And in the court's view, it, in fact, it, it was, that that's, that's a problem. Could you explain to me the, the reasoning there? Sure, sure. So the government is saying, look, DACA is illegal for an exception, but this determination as to its legality that we, the government, are making is unreviewable. And then the court says, well, no, it is reviewable uh, and it's wrong. The DACA is legal, a legal action, and so therefore the basis for rescinding it is false. The, you know, the, the basis for rescinding it based on its illegality is not, it must be set aside because DACA is legal. And so the argument as to the merits is, okay, then this rescission was arbitrary and capricious. That leads me to my next question. If that all leaves open the possibility that really at any point here, the government could have abandoned its appeal, right, and said, okay, fine, DACA is legal. We could concede that, but we just don't think it's a good idea. We think it's bad policy. And so in our discretion, we're going to rescind it. Could it have done that? And I guess why, if it really felt that it needed to end the program, why didn't it do that? Yeah, so that is an interesting question. I think it causes, you know, I think to a certain extent, that's what happened in the in some, in the Muslim travel ban litigation. The first travel ban was still under litigation, and the government said, okay, well, we're changing our reasons, and then changed the reasons again and, and gave reasons that basically passed muster at the Supreme Court. I think one of the, the reasons could be the ending of DACA was being used as a bargaining chip. I mean, I think as we've seen with this administration, you know, everything's political. And so rescinding DACA, there was no more of this looming threat that DACA was going to end and we needed new legislation, um, which was being used as a bargaining chip. I mean, this is, you know, speculation as to why the government didn't do it. And then also, 
the question of the this injunction is in place that says that you that stock of renewals still have to be accepted um, mm -hmm. and so the, then there would have also been litigation regarding the basis for the first suit is gone because there's these new a new basis for rescinding it but there is an injunction in place that says you can't stop the renewals so that would have been another issue on that point, the, the national injunction remains in place, issued from this Northern District of California. There's been a, a good bit of upset voiced by the administration that one court could have its ruling apply nationwide outside of its boundaries. Uh, the, the panel did not seem to have too big of a problem with the, the national basis or the, the national reach of this uh, injunction and ruled on that basis as, as well, right? Right. So the panel said, look, this is very uh, nationwide injunctions, very common in, in APA. We you know when the underlying claim is, in, is a violation of the APA, because if a law violates APA, it's, it's invalidated. It's not just, you know, its application isn't just limited to one to the plaintiff nationwide. It's invalidated. There's this uniformity in, in immigration enforcement, um, and that was cited as the reason for the nationwide injunction in the Fifth Circuit case that, in, you know, enjoined DAPA and DACA too. So, the you know the panel says, look, that this is a common nationwide injunctions are common in APA and common in the uniformity, you know, common in maintaining uniformity throughout immigration enforcement, which was, you know, the reason that that DAPA was enjoined in the first place. So, Then I suppose this ruling sets us up for probably what the administration imagined would be the end game from the beginning, an, an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you think that's the most likely next step as opposed, I, I suppose, to them uh, issuing a, a different sort of DACA rescission on some different basis? And if it, the case doesn't get to the Supreme Court, you know, how do you think the high court might feel about the uh, the different arguments advanced here? Yeah, I mean, I do think this increases the likelihood that it's going to go to the Supreme Court. The government tried to circumvent the, the, the lower appellate court and have the Supreme Court decide previously. And so the Supreme Court said, you know, ordered the district court to rule preliminarily. And, you know, they rarely review something before the lower courts have had a chance to review it. So, I think that this now increases the likelihood that the Supreme Court will review it and may even review it this term. So we could have a decision by uh, the end of June. And that's because this is involving a law that the government believes is illegal um, and that is in place right now. So I think that it is very likely the Supreme Court will, will review it. Another thing that I think is interesting, though, is that the record in this case is still only 256 pages. The administrative record has never really been completed. So it'll be interesting to see how the Supreme Court feels about ruling on a, such a small record. And probably it, it, it may not even get to the merits of it, uh, of the decision, uh, and may be ruling on, you know, the, the reviewability of the decision first. So, but I do think that, yeah, that um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Supreme Court doesn't take it up for this term. And then maybe just one last one as it relates to uh, the issue that we're, we're speaking about, another immigration-related decision by the administration announced this week by the Department of Justice, some new rules applicable to asylum seekers. I believe these rules are announced as opposed to sort of officially put into the federal register. I'm not sure you could correct me on that, but what what are these new rules regarding asylum? How, how do they differ from the ones previously in place and what sort of maybe legal challenges do you anticipate that might come um, against them? Well, I think uh, the ACLU has already filed a litigation today against mm -hmm. these rules. So this, they're proposed kind of rules that are, they're trying to do this by proclamation that basically people who have entered the, the the country illegally or who have, you know, not presented themselves at the border but have been apprehended within the U.S. after um, illegally crossing, that they are not entitled to asylum. And so the, the, the biggest um, issue with this is the law, the statute is written, the asylum statute, uh, does not distinguish between whether or not somebody who has entered either presenting at the port or uh, is apprehended after later coming in can be denied asylum. So the statute's silent as to whether you know, it doesn't matter. It, the, the way you enter the country does not matter. You're eligible to pursue asylum if you don't have any of the other bars that are prescribed in the statute. 
So asylum is discretionary, and basically this proclamation is attempting to say anybody who has is found within the U.S. and seeking asylum but who has not presented themselves at a port of entry is not eligible for asylum. So by proclamation, you are the, the asylum statute is being changed. And so I think that the, a lot of the litigation we're going to see is this is a congressional statute, and if you were to bar eligibility for asylum based on how someone entered the United States, that needs to be something that is done through you know, legislative procedures and not just by this kind of proclamation. Uh, well, certainly a, a busy time to be an, an immigration attorney. Uh, <laughs> appreciate you taking some time out for us, uh, Professor Jean Reese from uh, USC Gold School of Law. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Sometime in the next few months, the California Supreme Court will tell us, the public, just what issues interest us. But differently, the court will soon construe language in the anti-slap statute that prescribes the law's invocation when someone is sued for speech or activity made in relation to an issue of public interest. Kevin Vick of Jesse Vick, Carolyn, Los Angeles, says that only a broad judicial interpretation of the meaning of an issue of public interest can ensure the anti-slap laws purposes maintained. He joins us now. Mr. Vick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, so we're talking about a California Supreme Court case that heard argument earlier this week. Um, it's one where the court will review an anti-slap case and, and describe, um, I think, exactly what an issue of public interest is for the purpose of the anti-slap law. I uh, will get into to all that. But first, just as a, a little bit of context, and folks listening certainly are familiar with the anti-slap law, but remind me of the, the underlying purpose behind the law, now about 25 years old, why it's important, and particularly why it's important how the court defines either sort of broadly or narrowly what an issue of public interest is in reference to this law. We're, we're in luck here. You know, we don't need to sort of comb through reams and reams of paper with all the legislative intent and what the various committees said, because in the case of the anti-slap statute, the legislature put the purpose right in the statute itself. Uh, subsection A of the anti-slap statute provides, you know, the legislature finds and declares that there has been a disturbing increase in lawsuits brought primarily to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for redress of grievances. The legislature finds and declares that it is in the public interest to encourage continued participation in matters of public significance and that this participation should not be chilled through the abuse of the judicial process. To, end the, to this end, this section shall be construed broadly. And that last sentence about construing broadly, that was something that the legislature specifically added in 1997 by amendment. And the reason they did it was in response to a number of decisions from courts of appeal in California that had construed uh, the statute narrowly and it held that it only applied, for example, to certain types of speech, namely political speech, or the courts had imposed additional requirements that weren't present in the anti-slap statute itself. For example, some courts had said that there was a uh, intent to chill speech requirement, such that the defendant would have to show that the plaintiff's purpose in filing suit was to chill defendant's speech. <clears throat> but the 1997 amendments, you know, the, they disavowed that line of cases, and they said, hey, courts, you need to construe this statute broadly. They also added a new category, um, which is subsection E4, where they added a category to encompass any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. And that was important because previously courts were saying, well, you know, this wasn't itself speech, therefore it can't be covered, um, even in instances where the conduct involved was, you know, very closely intertwined with the speech itself. I mean, I guess some, some sort of examples would be, for example, if uh, someone is involved in news gathering that's ultimately going to lead to the speech, that's a necessary prerequisite for the speech, you know, under subsection E4, that's clearly covered now because that would be activity in furtherance of free speech rights. 
that that's a good example. Could you maybe um, describe any other sorts of uh, typical uh, essential situations that the the law was aimed to remedy? You said that the legislature was worried about cases that were happening more often to to chill speech. What are sort of the wheelhouse uh, typical cases they were worried about? Yeah, I think a sort of quintessential slap suit would be where someone you know, or someone like a politician or a, you know, titan of industry or celebrity or perhaps, you know, a giant pharmaceutical company where they sued an ordinary citizen who'd publicly criticized them in connection with, you know, say a political campaign or if a over-the-counter drug turned out to have dangerous side effects. And the concern here was that these people would be powerful and just the threat of lawsuits would silence people and that even if those lawsuits were ultimately unmeritorious, as anyone knows who litigates, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very expensive to demonstrate that a lawsuit is not meritorious. And they were afraid that the cost of litigation would be such a burden that it would end up chilling people's speech, which is why one of the things the anti-slap statute does, and this is something the, court, the California Supreme Court emphasized just a couple years ago in the Montebello B. Vasquez case, is that it creates an efficient screening mechanism for, quote, disposing of slaps, those are the strategic lawsuits against public participation, quickly and at minimal expense to taxpayers and litigants. And that, that's really the, the sort of key goal of the anti-slap statute, is to create this mechanism to root out meritless, meritless lawsuits targeting speech and petitioning rights early, early and inexpensively, and along those lines, there's also a attorney's fees provision whereby prevailing defendants are entitled to their attorney's fees. One, one more thing on those 1997 amendments. So you, you say that there was that additional subsection created. It sounds sort of like a, a catch-all because the other subsections that describe the types of activity, the types of speech that would um, trigger this the statute that could allow a person making that kind of speech to, to invoke it, um, they were a little bit there were types of speech that occurred sort of in more formal settings, often like more like statements before legislatures or judicial bodies or statements regarding public interest, but that were considered by some of those particular um, bodies. So that last one is sounds sort of like a uh, just a catch-all with some with some manifestly broad intent, I would guess. Yeah, that's correct. You know, subsections E1 and 2 address those sort of special settings, like you, like you mentioned. And then there was subsection E3, but that was limited to any written or oral statement or writing. So therefore, all sorts of conduct that, that again, was inextricably intertwined with what would ultimately be speech or writing on an issue of public interest arguably fell outside the scope. And that was not what the legislature had intended, so they went back and just made sure that that was crystal clear. Okay, and just one more preliminary point, of course, even when folks do invoke, uh, the defendants invoke this anti-slap statute <clears throat> to try to dismiss the case quickly, the plaintiff can still counter and demonstrate that they will likely win the case, even if it does, you know, say you're, uh, a famous person is suing someone that criticized them, if there was some slander involved in that, it's a likelihood that the plaintiff would prevail, then the anti-slap statute does not defeat that sort of case, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Brian. And, and I'm glad you raised that because it's a very important point because sometimes when there's criticism of the anti-slap statute, people say, well, this is just you know blocking an entire category of suits and it just gives defendants, you know, sometimes you, you hear the word immunity thrown around. And that's just not correct for the reason that you mentioned is the you know, we're there's two prongs to the anti-slap test. The first is whether the anti-slap statute applies. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, and that's what we've been talking about with subsection E, is whether the plaintiff's claims are even subject to the anti-slap statute. And even if they are, even if the defendant succeeds in establishing that the anti-slap statute applies, the plaintiff still can defeat the anti-slap motion by basically showing that there is, you know, minimal merit. And in terms of what the plaintiff must show, it's a standard that largely mirrors summary judgment. So it's the same sort of burden that a plaintiff would face in trying to defeat a summary judgment motion. The statute itself talks about, you know, must show a probability of prevailing. But this isn't you know, it, this is not like a preliminary injunction standard that we're talking about. It, you know, the court does not make credibility determinations or, or weigh evidence at the time. It's instead, it's like a summary judgment standard. 
That makes sense. So the, the that first prong there, determining whether or not the defendant can rightly invoke the anti-slap statute, will depend to some extent whether their speech or activity referred to or was in relation to an issue of public interest. So obviously the uh, broad or narrow interpretation of what is in the public interest matters. Um, and you've written for a paper that courts of appeals have come down differently on this question, right? What What is the nature of some of the varying interpretations? I've heard that some courts of appeal will say it's an issue of public interest if it interests really anyone. Uh, there's other approaches too. What are some of those um, different interpretations? Yeah, the courts have reached really quite different tests or criteria to determine what whether you know a defendant's speech or speech-related conduct concerns an issue of public interest. Now, you've had some courts of appeal that have stuck very closely and have you know, expressly relied on that that legislature's mandate to construe the anti-slap statute broadly. Probably the most famous of those would be the Nygaard decision, which was from the second district in 2008. And there the court said that an issue of public interest within the meaning of the anti-slap statute is any issue in which the public is interested. In other words, the issue need not be significant to be protected by the anti-slap statute, it is enough that it is one in which the public takes an interest. So here, this is, you know, this is essentially a descriptive approach. The, t- the courts are taking a more empirical approach just to see whether the public, there, there really is whether or not there's demonstrable public interest. The courts aren't adding their own normative judgment as to whether an issue deserves serious public attention. Um, you know, they're not dismissing stuff because it relates to, say, pop culture issues that a individual judge may particularly think is just, you know, silly and ephemeral. Instead, it's just saying, hey, you know, if there's demonstrable significant public interest in this subject, well, then that's an issue of public interest under the statute. Now, another approach has arisen that, uh, that's, that's, you know, significantly narrower than that. Um, I think probably the leading case on this uh, set of cases would be the Rivero case from 2000. And there the court held that there's only three categories of speech and speech-related conduct that can satisfy the public interest is- issue of public interest requirement. Now, the first category is that the statement or activity precipitating the underlying cause of action was a person or entity in the public eye. So here, you know, if if you're talking about a big celebrity or about a politician, that's fine, but otherwise, no. The second category that's possible is the statement or activity precipitating the underlying cause of action involves conduct that could affect large numbers of people beyond the direct participants. Finally, the third potential category is that the statement or activity precipitating the claim involves a topic of widespread public interest. Now, as you might note, that's, that's narrower than Nygaard, significantly narrower. Um, now, some courts went even further than the Rivero test and added a requirement that the statement or activity must take place in the context of an ongoing controversy or discussion. So, for example, if defendant's speech you know, sparked, started what grew into a controversy or discussion, that defendant could be out of luck for the purposes of the anti-slap statute. It, it, there was a necessary, it was considered necessary to show that there's this ongoing controversy. Now, perhaps the narrowest interpretation of the issue of public interest requirement, that came from the third district in the Weinberg case, which is one that was cited and relied on by Rand Resources, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit. Now, what Weinberg did is it, 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 it took and it set forth these sort of five categories of situations saying this is what public interest does not constitute. They said public interest does not equate with mere curiosity. They said public interest, it must be something of concern to a substantial number of people. It said that there should be some degree of closeness between the challenge statements and the asserted public interests. It added that the focus of the speaker's conduct should be the public interest rather than a mere effort to gather ammunition for another round of private controversy. And then finally, it said those charged with defamation cannot, by their own conduct, create their own defense by making the claimant a public figure. So, you know, I think with Weinberg, it's interesting to notice how far we've gone from the anti-slap statute's express mandate that it be construed broadly to now we've got only three categories that can qualify. And even then, there's these, you know, further restrictions that are being set up as virtual, you know, per se rules 
for excluding cases from the coverage of the anti-slap statute. That fairly wide range of different interpretations and approaches by the intermediate appellate courts. It would intermediate appellate courts would sort of suggest to me that perhaps there hasn't been terribly much guidance or instruction from the high court on this question. But in the filings, there are some citations. And you mentioned a uh, California Supreme Court case, the city of Montebello. In the filings, there are references to that case and, and a case called Vargas for City of Salinas, where the, the high court has addressed this question. What what has the, the guidance been like from the California Supreme Court as to uh, this issue? Has there Has there been much? No, there hasn't. Neither Vargas nor City of Montebello addresses the substance of the issue of public interest requirement, let alone, you know, resolve the differences between these various court of appeal lines of decision. The California Supreme Court has not really spoken on it. And you'll see, you know, passing dicta about it, but they haven't addressed this split. And frankly, I think, God, if memory serves correct, the last time they really sort of addressed it and then chose not to give any sort of firm rules was back in 1999. I believe that was the Briggs decision. And they noted the, the that it was not defined. And they talked about, you know, whether or not a definition was needed, but they didn't decide. Um, so that's what sort of has left this opening for the various courts of appeal to come up with these differing tests. So the time is ripe. Yeah. It sounds like this is a good case then for the, the court to squarely address the question and, and a good time for them to, to to do it. Let's get into that case then. It's between a city nearby, the city of Carson, and a, a private company, Rand Resources, centers around a agreement that the two parties had, an exclusive agency agreement, whereby Rand would bargain on behalf of the city in relation to the prospective development of an NFL stadium and the perhaps the attraction of an NFL team to Carson. Do I have that roughly right? And and what then happened to, to prompt this suit brought by Rand against uh, the city of Carson? Yeah, you've, you've set forth the key factual background. Um, what Rand Resources claimed was that the city didn't stick to the deal, that they let other people act as the agent and representative for the city with the NFL and in developing a potential stadium. And that led Rand Resources to sue the city and others for breach of contract, fraud, interference with contract, and other claims. And in response, then, a number of defendants, they filed anti-slap motions. The trial court granted them. Um, The court ruled, for the purposes of our conversation, the key part is they ruled that the the issue of public interest requirement was satisfied because the speech and activity uh, was in connection with a contract with the city for the development of the NFL stadium and trying to bring an NFL team to Carson. That anti-slap motion was reversed, though, by the the second district court of appeal, who I think felt, which I think felt differently about the holding on the public interest part. Uh, what was the the reasoning of the second district court of appeal? Yeah, the the second district court of appeal here they. They apply the narrower version of the issue of public interest analysis from the Weinberg case that we previously mentioned. And what they held was that even though bringing an NFL team to Carson, that that was an issue of public interest. But here they they kind of drilled down and they said the claims here, really what what they concern are statements or, uh, or really what they concern is the identity of the city's agent which the Court of Appeal did not believe was itself an issue of public interest. The Court of Appeal, they really want, they focused on the particular statements and conduct at issue in the case, and they refused to look to the broader subject to which that speech and conduct related. Now, that focus, that's, that's different than what some other Court of Appeal decisions have done. You know, other Courts of Appeal, they've looked to the broader topic of the defendant's speech. I think for the, in, in terms of the importance of this decision outside of just the facts of this case and the interests of these parties, that's probably the most interesting part of the Court of Appeals decision with regard to the issue of public interest. It's what's the proper focus? Where should the inquiry be focused? Should it be focused on really just the, the very particular statements or conduct that are you know, the gravamen of the plaintiff's claim? Or do you look to whether those statements or conduct have a, you know, a, enough of a connection to a larger issue to qualify for coverage by the anti-slap statute? So the, the appeals court here is saying if you, if you zoom the lens all the way in here and you focus just on the issue of who is negotiating 
for the stadium or the team. The public doesn't much much care who that party is, but you're saying if you zoom the lens a little bit further out, what we're talking about is an NFL team coming to Carson, and that's obviously a public interest, so that difference is uh, critical. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I'm not sure exactly if this relates to the, the central question we're talking about, the issue of public interest, but it, it seems like something that we have been talking around a bit, the difference between speech and conduct as it relates to the anti-slap statute. And one thing the appeals court also said was um, that the activity here is more conduct than speech, just uh, negotiating with maybe a, a, a different party outside of that exclusive agreement. What's the fight exactly over where the line between speech and conduct is drawn for this uh, context? Yeah, that shouldn't really ultimately matter. Yeah, as we discussed previously in 1997, one of the amendments was to add subsection E4, which covers not just you know statements or writing, speech itself, but also you know conduct in furtherance of speech or petitioning rights. So so long as the conduct was in furtherance of speech or petition, petitioning rights. Um, in connection with an issue of public interest, that speech conduct distinction shouldn't matter. Now, of course, if the conduct, you know, doesn't relate to or, or was not in furtherance of speech or petitioning activities that relate that are in connection with an issue of public interest, that would be a problem. Then it wouldn't apply. But I, I yeah, and I saw some of that, I believe, in some of the briefing, too, um, by parties. And to be honest, I didn't really understand that, that sort of speech conduct distinction and why there was as much emphasis as there was on it. The the briefing from Rand here to the, the high court, hoping to uphold the second district's ruling, uh, largely echoes the, the, the reasoning of the second district, um, saying that, as we've, we've spoken about, the identity of who's negotiating with the NFL isn't particularly of public interest, even if the, the larger subject is. You've written in our paper that it, it's it's appropriate for this law and it's the intention of the law to be in, interpreted broadly and this point to be interpreted broadly. So I take it you find Rand's view incorrect. Why is it uh, the your view that this particular issue fought over is of public interest for the purposes of the anti-slap law? Yeah, I do. That, that, that's a fair uh, statement of my opinion. I, I think that, you know, when we talked earlier about the zooming in or zooming out, I, I think the Court of Appeal here in Rand Resources, they zoomed in about as, as tight, tightly as you possibly could. And I don't think that's correct under the statute. You know, the, the statute itself talks about in subsection E3 and E4, you know, looking at, say, E4, it says any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. To me, that language supports the proposition that, that what the court should be focusing is on whether the the speech or speech furthering activity at issue, um, whether that's in connection with an issue of public interest. That that suggests that you really should be looking more at the broader topic rather than just drilling down to just this particular plaintiff or just the specifics of the particular statements at issue. <clears throat> so I, I, I do. I think that the Court of Appeal looked at this too narrowly. Now, I should add, the city made another argument besides that argument in its papers to the Supreme Court. The city took, did sort of an assuming arguendo type thing where they said, look, even if you stick to the narrower focus, the identity of the representative for the city and its negotiations and bringing an NFL team and stadium to the city, that that itself should be a matter of public interest because the stakes are so high and the skill of the particular negotiator could make or break the success of the city's efforts. That's, you know, I think that's a decent argument as well, that e even if you were here to accept this narrower test, um, it still should be satisfied here. Uh, you know, that, that it may depend on the factual circumstances of an individual case, but if you're hearing that a city government is, you know, who they're hiring in terms of representing themselves with some really high-profile projects like this was, that certainly seems to me that it could be a matter of public interest on its own. Um, so that's, you know, I, I think those are the issues that, that we'll see in terms of how the Supreme Court rules here. Um, I, I also tend to think that the, the, 
the general contours of that Nygaard approach make more sense looking at, you know, what is the public interested in. That's not exactly necessarily what it, what is at issue here in RAND Resources. RAND Resources, to me, seems like the crux of the issue is more about, like, what's the proper focus of inquiry? Are you zooming in? Are you zooming out? Are you staying somewhere in the middle ground between the two in terms of, you know, w- what's your place and your focus on? <clears throat> the, the question of once you've decided on the proper point of focus, what should count as an issue of public interest? I tend more towards the Nygaard approach. I think it lends itself to more empirical approaches, looking at what the people are actually interested in. I think it also allows courts to draw on jurisprudence in related fields, like First Amendment law, where you know courts have addressed um, you know what sort of connection statements must have to public or newsworthy issues in order to satisfy matter of public interest type requirements in other areas of law. For example, the California Supreme Court, they took a pretty expansive view of this issue in their 1998 decision in the Shulman case. I worry about formulations like that sort of three buckets test that we saw from Revero that are trying to limit it to only certain defined categories. I find that pretty hard to square with the anti-slap statutes language about construing it broadly. And I don't think we want judges making, you know, personal value judgments about whether issues are sufficiently important on normative grounds, you know, i.e. what the judges think the public should be interested in, what is, you know, subjectively worthy of public interest. I don't think that's what we want. And I think that's, frankly, fairly inconsistent with other areas of First Amendment law um, and the jurisprudence that has developed there. So those would be my thoughts on the, uh, on the case in, in terms of how I think it should show out, how it should work out. Then in terms of maybe how you think it, it will play out, it, it, uh, do you, have, you, you said the California Supreme Court has not provided too much guidance aside from a bit of dicta in previous cases on this point. Do you have thoughts on how it might be inclined to view this issue? And also it seems like the court is definitely teeing this up to be a, a broad ruling that can be applied going forward in, in really all anti-slap cases, would you say that that's a fair surmise? It seems unlikely to me, at least, that they're planning on doing sort of a fact-specific approach only applying to this case. Well, you know, I would have said that, but then a while back, they asked for supplemental briefing on the issue of whether their 2017 decision in Park governed this case. And that's particularly interesting because Park addressed a different issue under the anti-slap statute. That there, the Supreme Court held that the anti-slap statute did not apply to FIHA claims against the Board of Trustees of the State University System, where the originally wrongful conduct was the denial of tenure to a professor. The Supreme Court, they rejected arguments that the anti-slap statute applied because, first, the denial decision occurred, or these were the arguments that were put forward by the, uh, the Board of Trustees, that the denial decision, it occurred in connection with communications made in an, an official proceeding, i.e. the tenure decision-making process, and second, that the decision itself was communicated by and inextricably intertwined with speech petitioning, petitioning activity. But the Supreme Court took a narrower view in terms of whether a particular cause of action arises from protected activity. And they took a a narrower view about, you know, really sort of looking at what the gravamen of the complaint and saying whether or not you have got a close enough nexus to the the protected activity to apply the anti-slap statute. And it's significant that the Supreme Court reached out and asked for supplemental briefing on the park issue because the Court of Appeal and Rand Resources, their decision, it's not laid out crystal clear in the decision itself, but I think a fair reading of it could could support the idea that what the Court of Appeal was doing there was really ruling on two alternative grounds. One, the issue of public interest ground which is the one we've discussed and the one that everyone was focused on, in part because the Supreme Court granted review as to that specific issue. But then second, there's also a determination by the court there that they didn't think the gravamen of these claims truly arose from protected activity. So it's conceivable if the Supreme Court wanted to, they could punt on the issue of whether, you know, defining what constitutes an issue of public interest and they could just decide this case based on the same grounds that Park was decided. 
Whether or not they'll do that, I have no idea. It would be frustrating for you know lower courts and anti-slap nerds like me, as we've been you know following this case and thinking we're going to get some clarity on what's an issue of public interest. But uh, you never know. It's the Supreme Court. They they may decide that they want to address the issue of public interest uh, issue in a cleaner case. You know, maybe where the gravamen of the claims it's undeniably speech or petitioning activity, or the who knows? I, honestly, I don't know. But but when they asked for the supplemental briefing, I personally uh, thought, uh oh, you know, I thought we were going to get a, finally get a decision from the Supreme Court on this issue where we've seen such differing approaches. And now maybe we won't. But who knows? Maybe maybe we will. There's certainly, I think the parties and the amici did a very effective job of demonstrating to the Supreme Court that there are these differing approaches in the courts of appeal. And that some clarity would be, you know, very welcome. Yeah, I suppose it does. the The nature of the case and the fact pattern does sound a, a little bit dissimilar from, say, like that quintessential case that you set up, or an example where you give of a person doing some news gathering or reporting. Um, these are you know, parties negotiating uh, agreements. Of course, it sounds a bit different, but as you say, there's certainly need for some clarity on this point. Is that, in your view, then? I guess the sort of the importance of this case really depends on just how how broadly the court will rule, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, we'll see. If they tell us, if they reach the the issue of public interest requirement, then it's going to be incredibly important. It could, you know, really sort of change things. If they don't, then it's a lot less likely. If they just sort of decided on park grounds, that will be of, you know, great interest to these parties and perhaps to other parties in the future who are in similar situations and contexts and circumstances, but it's not going to have the same degree of importance to people in sort of media organizations or local activists or all, all of the people who are generally very interested in anti-slap law more generally. Okay, then just one last one. Uh, speaking of anti-slap law more generally, there are plenty of issues related to the law that, that seem to percolate up through the courts. Um, you've written about a few of them. I'd be curious to ask you any other about any other salient um, anti-slap issues that are particularly front and center at this time. I know one, for example, you've written about is that there's some pushback from federal courts and here in the Ninth Circuit that maybe this state procedural law shouldn't be applied when cases get up to that federal appellate court, um, even though they're the, the, the claims that the, the law is applied to are state ones when they're they're dealt with in the, the federal court. Is that one of the, the main issues that's salient here? And are there any other ones that you're, you're watching? Yeah, I think that's the main one I would say right now. Um, you know, part that we'd previously discussed addressed one that was open. There was, I believe the case was Newport Harbor that had to do with, you know, amendments. In terms of the open issues of slap law, I think you've put your finger on the one that I'm probably focused on the most besides the issue of public interest. Um, I don't think the Ninth Circuit is likely to switch course on this. You know, they've held that, that certain aspects of the anti-slap statute apply in federal court to state law claims that are there. And I don't think they're going to change their mind. I mean, former Chief Judge Kaczynski, he was the main judge driving the opposition to application of the anti-slap statute in federal court. There's other judges who agreed with him, but I'm somewhat skeptical that the Ninth Circuit is really going to revisit the issue on Bonk now that he's not there anymore, you know, really championing the issue. However, there is a chance the U.S. Supreme Court may grant cert on the issue of the applicability of state anti-slap laws to, in federal court. That's because there's, there's a growing circuit split there, and uh, the, one of the, the other side from the Ninth Circuit, the side that does not believe the anti-slap statute should apply at all in federal court, the key case there is a 2015 decision from the D.C. Court of Appeals, and the judge who wrote the opinion deciding that the anti-slap statute should not apply in federal court is none other than the newest justice, Justice Kavanaugh. So we know it's something that was on his radar. Again, there seems to be a growing circuit split with more circuits deciding one way or the other whether or not it should apply as more states across the country are adopting anti-slap laws. So I would look for that. I would look to see if we get a cert granted in the next couple of years and make that determination. Be what is the main argument there? It's that when the federal courts are considering state law claims, usually they apply federal procedural law, but then state substantive law, and, and this is sort of a more of a procedural law. Is that right? Yep, 
it's it's whether or not this is procedural or substantive, and then a second layer is you know whether or not there's a conflict, um, and that's where you know some courts, so, some judges have said, well, there's inherently a conflict. Others have said that the laws can coexist, or at least certain aspects of the laws can coexist. You know, in the Ninth Circuit, uh, for example, there are certain aspects of the statute that do not apply. Um, for example, the the, the, the presumpt- automatic presumptive discovery stay under the California anti-slap statute, the Ninth Circuit and the, the I can't remember if there's a, I think there's a Ninth Circuit decision directly on point. I know there's district courts that have ruled this, and they've held that that uh, that will not be enforced because that conflicts with the federal rules of civil procedures own rules regarding discovery. Okay, well we'll stay tuned and follow that one, and of course also the California Supreme Court. Okay, so we've been talking about, yeah. um, but for now we'll leave it there. Uh, Kevin Vick of Jesse Vick and Carolyn in Los Angeles, thanks very much for having on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I was very glad to be here. And with that, our program for November 9th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank one more time both of my guests, Professor Gene Reese from USC Gould School of Law and Kevin Vick. From Jesse Vick, Carolyn. Should also thank my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thanks to you as well for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One, you can receive an hour of California CLE credit for having tuned into the podcast. It's very simple. Just find a short true false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Also, don't forget to look for our show on the various streaming avenues where it can be found. If you search weekly appellate report, or Daily Journal in the podcast app, or really just about anywhere you find your podcast, you should be able to find us listening to us there and also rating or reviewing us. It's greatly appreciated. It helps other folks find the show. I'm Brian Cardell. Have a great week, and in particular, a great Armistice Day and Veterans Day. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>